0: Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Thank you so much to our online donors that make this podcast possible by donating through ParadoxGiving.com. Today we are looking at a very overlooked story of the Bible in 2 Chronicles 13, and today's teaching is entitled Abijah's Trumpets. Before we meet King Abijah, we need to give a bit of a summary of where we arrived during last week's episode. King David is considered by many to be Israel's greatest king. Around the 11th century BCE, David rose to power, established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and led his country into an era of prosperity. With his wealth, David laid all of the groundwork for the impending construction of the temple to Yahweh. But before construction began, David passed away. His son Solomon ascended to the throne. Solomon fulfilled his father's dying wish and built the temple, but he accomplished this by enslaving men and women to do his will. This slavery was so harsh that after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam became king and immediately met a massive rebellion led by a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam, with all of the people behind him, Went before David's grandson Rehoboam and said, Your father Solomon made our yoke heavy. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. Jeroboam explicitly told King Rehoboam that they will no longer tolerate a king who enslaves them to build religious architecture. Jeroboam's rebellion sought a promise of justice and mercy from Rehoboam. In particular, Jeroboam wanted Rehoboam to disavow his father's ways and commit to a new way of building the economy. King Rehoboam heard the rebellious Jeroboam and requested three days to consider what kind of king he would be. Three days later, the king returned and told Jeroboam, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. In other words, King Rehoboam told Jeroboam, You thought my father Solomon was bad? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. After this proclamation, Rehoboam sent his chief enslavement officer, Hadoram, to enslave the men and women who revolted against him. But Jeroboam and the people of Israel rose up against Hadoram and murdered him. The murder of Hadoram served as a declaration of independence, and all but two of the tribes of Israel seceded from King Rehoboam's reign and formed the independent nation of Israel to the north with Jeroboam as their new king. Rehoboam still sat on the throne in Jerusalem, but his nation changed names and became the nation of Judah. Before we go any further, you have to keep these two nations separate in your mind. The northern kingdom of Israel rebelled against the southern kingdom of Judah because Israel was tired of being enslaved by the kings who were the descendants of David who still sat on the throne of Judah. Once again, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Now, Judah initially consisted of just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. But within a few years, the tribe of Levi abandoned the nation of Israel and joined the southern nation of Judah. So here in the 10th century BCE, you have two separate nations from the children of Israel. There are two different kings sitting on two different thrones with two very different understandings of what transpired and led to this acrimonious split. If this isn't confusing enough for you, there's even more. Because around the same time, both Jeroboam and Rehoboam each fathered a son. Jeroboam, the king of the north, named his son Abijah. And Rehoboam named his son Abijam. But in Chronicles, the author inexplicitly changes Abijam's name to Abijah, which is also the name of Jeroboam's son. (laughs) Now this Abijah, the son of Rehoboam, The grandson of Solomon and the great-grandson of David is the king Abijah that we are discussing today. And he will sit on the throne of Judah. Now, Abijah matured in the shadow of bloody wars, fought in the name of preserving the union of Israel. In the chapter before Abijah's story, the author of Chronicles tells us there were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. By the time Abijah becomes king of Judah, these civil wars were raging for 18 years. 18 years! The civil war in America lasted for four years. Can you imagine how different our nation today might be if the civil war lasted four and a half times as long as it actually did? We then read about Abijah's coronation in chapter 13 of 2 Chronicles. The author writes, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. Abijah reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, daughter of Uriel of Jebeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah engaged in battle, having an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 picked men. Now we need to stop here from reading the text because we have to acknowledge something. 400,000 men? That's a lot of men. To put that in perspective, let's go to the shores of Normandy, France, where Allied forces landed on five different beaches on June 6, 1944. Do you know how many Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day? It was 156,000 troops. That is a large army. But all the way back in the 10th century BCE, the author of Chronicles tells us that Abijah assembled 400,000 troops, well over twice the number of allied soldiers that landed on D-Day, and Abijah assembled all these troops after 18 years of prior war. This is a sensational number that should raise a few eyebrows from anyone who is reading the text closely. After reading about 400,000 soldiers for Abijah, we then read in that same verse, and Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 picked mighty warriors. 800,000? This is getting ridiculous. The author is telling us that the population of San Francisco is about to go to war with the population of Bakersfield. To put all of this in perspective, One of the most infamous battles in American history, Gettysburg, had a total of 160,000 Union and traitorous soldiers on its battlefield. The author of Chronicles wants us to believe that the Battle of Abijah and Jeroboam somehow has seven and a half times the amount of soldiers as the Battle of Gettysburg. So let's just go with the author's vision and picture 1.2 million troops assembled in war and ready for battle. 800,000 of them are from the northern kingdom of Israel and for King Jeroboam. 400,000 of them are from the southern kingdom of Judah and are for King Abijah. Before the battle begins, we read, Then King Abijah stood on the slope of Mount Zemaraim that is in the hill country of Ephraim and said, Now before we get to what just said, we need to pause here. Because according to Chronicles, the battle with 1.2 million soldiers takes place at Mount Zemaraim. There's just one problem. We don't know where Mount Zemaraim is today. Now we know where the land of Ephraim is. The land of Ephraim is in the northwestern corner of Judah. And the land of Ephraim is much more hilly than it is mountainous. One of these hills in the land of Ephraim was somehow dubbed Mount Zemarim, but we aren't sure which one it was. So on a hillside, Abijah addressed Jeroboam and all 800,000 of his troops without any powered amplification. Abijah said to them, Listen to me, Jeroboam, and all of Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Now, of course, Abijah said this, because he is David's great-grandson. Abijah firmly believed that God desired for Abijah and all of his descendants to rule the throne forever. Abijah continued, Yet Jeroboam, son of Nabat, a servant of Solomon, son of David, rose up and rebelled against his lord. And certain worthless scoundrels gathered around him and defied my father Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. Now, who are the worthless scoundrels that Abijah is referring to here? Well, it's the army of 800,000 Israelites who are right there and are most likely about to crush him due to their advantage. But that did not deter Abijah. Instead, Abijah plotted on. And now you think that you can withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made as gods for you. Now, Abijah references two things here, the great multitude and the golden calves. The great multitude is the 800,000 troops. The golden calves, however, are new. To understand that, the capital of Judah was in the city of Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the temple built by Abijah's grandfather Solomon was the center of all religious practice and thought, according to Judah. In the northern nation of Israel, the capital city was Samaria, Now, because the people of Israel could no longer participate in the worship at the actual temple due to, you know, the civil war, Jeroboam set up a religious center of his own in Samaria and instead of a temple, built it around two golden calves. The people of Judah predictably condemned any worship that centered around the golden calves in Samaria. From Judah's perspective... They believed that the golden calves existed as a critique of the temple and dubbed the golden calves as heresy. Israel, however, the northern kingdom, most likely believed that God's presence resided among the golden calves. So after pointing out what Abijah believed to be a sacrilegious worship, Abijah decided then to talk about religion a lot. Abijah extensively lectured Jeroboam and all of the Israelite soldiers before battle on the proper etiquette and care for religion. Abijah said, have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes to be consecrated with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. But as for us being Judah, the Lord is our God, and we have not abandoned the Lord. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are descendants of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and fragrant incense, set out the rows of bread on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand so that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, But you, O Jeroboam and Israel, have abandoned God. See, God is with us at our head, and his priests have their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O Israelites, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your ancestors, for you cannot succeed. That was a rant. But what Abijah did not know is that while he was rambling on about how much holier his nation is than the nation of Israel, we read Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come on them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah turned, the battle was in front of them and behind him. This is bad news for Judah. Judah. You may ask me how I know that this is bad news, and the reason is because I went paintballing once in my life, and I learned a very valuable lesson on that day. All the way back in 2009, I planned my brother Scott's bachelor party at the paintballing venue called SC Village here in Corona, California. In all of the matches we played against each other, Scotty, my brother, and I were never on the same team, because we relish each and every opportunity we have to beat the other in any form of competition in one match in particular my brother was on the east side of the map and i was on the west side of the map the ref blew his whistle and we charged up the west side while scotty tried to hold down his team's side on the east on the western side my teammate and i were hunkered down but we managed to score hits on two of Scott's team members and we eliminated them from the game. With those two members down, their flank was gone. My teammate and I were now free to sneak around back behind Scott's team without their team knowing. This moment in Corona is the very incarnation of 2 Chronicles 13, which says when Judah turned, the battle was in front and behind them. After sneaking around the back with my teammate, I received a gift from the Lord. I stood behind my brother, 15 feet only, and he was completely unaware that I had a clear shot on him. I smiled behind my mask. Now, I didn't shoot him right away because I was living in the moment and I was loving it. After a few moments... I shot three paintballs at Scott and all three hit him. He immediately whirled around and yelled at me, what are you doing? I am on your team. And then he realized it was not his teammate who shot him, but it was his brother. Scotty's tone changed and he said, oh no, not you. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because it's really hard to win a battle when the enemy is behind and in front of you. And if you don't believe me, then just ask Scotty. Bird. <laughs> so Judah is surrounded with the battle in front of and behind them. Not only that, but they are outnumbered two to one. The battle of Mount Zemaraim is supposed to be over at this point, right? Judah will be wiped off the map. Abijah will be the last descendant of David on the throne, and the civil war of 18 years will finally be brought to an end. But in the face of overwhelming odds, the people of Judah, outnumbered and outmaneuvered, cried out to their Lord, and the priests blew their trumpets. I love this part of the story because with their backs against the wall and staring the grim reaper straight in the eyeballs the nation of Judah turned to the musicians and said, you know what we need? A trumpeteer. After the trumpet blast, the people of Judah raised a battle shout. And when the people of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. What? The trumpets and shouts caused God to intervene and decide this battle? And as we continue to read, we realize that God did not cause a slight victory, but a decisive victory. We read, Abijah and his army defeated them with great slaughter. 500,000 picked men of Israel fell slain. Whoa, 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 whoa. 500,000 people are killed. Half a million, half a million men are slaughtered. This is a humongous amount of death. To put that into perspective, in all of World War II, which may I remind you lasted multiple years, there were 416,800 American soldiers who gave their lives for this country. But in this story, 500,000 Israelite soldiers are killed in just one battle. I have so many questions about this story, and the biggest question I have is why? Why? Why did God kill 500,000 Israelite soldiers? Why didn't God just show up before the fighting began and reveal herself so that all 1.2 million soldiers could see God with their own eyes? And while they're looking at God, God could just clearly say to them, Hey Israel, quit rebelling and get back on God's team, which is Judah, or I will be forced to kill you. I mean, that seems like the most loving option for God to pursue, right? Right? wouldn't a god of justice act in this way rather than just blindly murdering half a million people because one side blew their trumpets <laughs> why did god kill five hundred thousand israelite soldiers i think we need to spend some time with this question now this is not the only story in the bible where god kills a large amount of people and when we run into these stories i have found that there are three common answers that people offer when they encounter these stories in Scripture. I want us to explore each of these common answers in an effort for us to better understand what exactly it is that we believe about God and who God actually is. So the first and most common answer that one might give to the idea that God killed 500,000 soldiers is that God needed to teach Israel a lesson. The reasoning behind this answer is that Israel rebelled against the grandson of David, King Rehoboam. And Israel continued that rebellion into a new generation against Rehoboam's son, King Abijah. God needed to teach the rebellious Israelites a lesson with tough love. This is why God, according to many, intervened in the battle of Mount Zemaraim and slaughtered 500,000 men. This intervention served as a cosmic rebuke, and it was all dealt in an effort to make the Israelites aware of their sins and to inspire them to repent. Therefore, some people say that God is justified in killing 500,000 people because it was ultimately for the surviving Israelites' greater good. There's just one problem (laughs) with that answer, and the problem is that God's cosmic rebuke didn't work. After this battle was over, Israel never came back to Judah. In fact, these nations stayed separated for another two centuries before Assyria conquered Israel in 722 BCE. So if God killed 500,000 men to send a strong message to Israel, then the people of Israel did not receive that message, and they continued in their own ways. God's costly error left 500,000 people dead and God seems to show no remorse. The idea that God killed 500,000 people to teach Israel a lesson is invalid because it paints the picture of a God who is reckless, sloppy, and even incompetent. So if God did not teach Israel a lesson, then why did God kill 500,000 soldiers? The second most common answer I hear is to teach Judah a lesson. Now, this is an interesting answer, particularly because this is the answer that the author of Chronicles gives. Right after God kills 500,000 Israelite soldiers, the author writes, Thus the Israelites were subdued at that time, and the people of Judah prevailed, because they relied on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. In other words, the author believed that God killed half a million people to teach Judah a lesson. But what exactly is the lesson that God taught Judah? Well, think for a moment about the battle that we just read. Israel had twice as many soldiers as Judah in this battle. Not only that, but Jeroboam had superior military tactics compared to Abijah. But what did Judah and King Abijah have, according to the author of Chronicles? They had trumpets. Lots of trumpets. Is the lesson that God wanted Judah to learn from killing 500,000 Israelite soldiers is that when Judah goes into battle, they need to leave their swords at home and just bring their trumpets instead? I would argue that according to the author of Chronicles, the answer is yes. Now, this may sound bat excrement crazy to you, but allow me to demonstrate what the author is getting at with this idea. The Battle of Mount Zemaraim takes place sometime around the year 915 BCE. We have no record of this battle until 600 years later when the author of Chronicles writes down the story of Mount Zemaraim sometime around the year 350 BCE. In 350 BCE... The author of Chronicles is living under the Persian Empire, and his country and he are paying heavy taxes to Persia. During this time, there are all sorts of discussions in Judah about politics and ideologies and strategies that Judah needs to execute in order to restore itself to former glory. You can imagine that in 350 BCE, there was a strong sentiment that people believe they just needed a bigger military or more advanced weapons or a brilliant military strategist to lead Judah into victory, freedom, and independence. The author of Chronicles probably heard all of these conversations in his day and decided to tell a story about a battle that happened a long time before they lived when Judah was outmaneuvered and outmanned, and they still won because they, quote, relied on the Lord. So according to the author of Chronicles, God killed 500,000 Israelite soldiers to teach Judah a lesson. If Judah wants to become victorious in military battles, all they need to do is put down their swords and pick up their trumpets. For the author of Chronicles, the trumpet is a symbol for religious zeal in this story. And the author's point is abundantly clear. If we prioritize religion, then God will give us victory over our enemies. Now, I have heard plenty of sermons in my lifetime on this idea, and it sounds really good, and it's enjoyable to hear that if we prioritize religion, then God will give us victory. There's just one problem. No one actually believes this. Think about how different our lives would be here in America if we believed that religious priority would give us victory over our enemies. All of a sudden, we wouldn't need tanks anymore. We wouldn't need helicopters. We wouldn't need guns. We would just need trumpets. If we believe that our devotion to religion determined the outcome of our military's fortunes, then you wouldn't see soldiers running over obstacles in boot camp. Instead, you would see drill sergeants passionately instructing their soldiers to read the Bible. You would see the Army Corps of Engineers assembling churches instead of barracks on the battlefields. You would witness every soldier taking communion before they walked into a battle unarmed. If we actually believed that our religious devotion determined our military strength, we would cut military funding down to zero. And then we would place pastors, pastors in charge of the military, This idea, which is the lesson that the author of Chronicles wants us to believe God taught Judah at the battle of Mount Zemarim, is a lesson that no one actually believes. So when people tell me that God needed to kill 500,000 Israelite soldiers to teach the people of Judah a lesson about religious devotion leading to military victory, I would say that answer is invalid because it's a lesson that simply isn't true. Which brings us to the third common answer that people give to this question of a divinely sanctioned mass genocide. People believe that God killed 500,000 Israelite soldiers to teach Christians a lesson. Abijah stands on the side of a mountain and lectures 800,000 people about how they have not practiced the proper religion. In response to this theological diatribe, Jeroboam launches an attack against the lecturer and 500,000 people die. For many Christians today, the Battle of Mount Zemarim is an ancient parallel for what they believe about salvation today. And while most Christians are disappointed to hear that 500,000 Israelite soldiers died, there's this collective shrug from Christianity as they think, hmm, sounds just like the end times. From the story of Mount Zemarim, Christians will tell other people that they better be on God's side or God will have no choice but to wipe the infidels out in mass in the same way that God wiped out 500,000 soldiers in mass 2,900 years ago. What's really disturbing about this lesson in salvation is that we are talking about 500,000 Israelite soldiers. And when I say Israelite, What I mean is that they are the children of Israel. Israel was a real person, the grandson of Abraham. And all of Israel and all of Judah claimed Israel as their common ancestor. So God murders 500,000 Israelites and asks the people of Judah to watch the slaughter of their cousins, brothers, and family members. God then desires and asks them to respond to this slaughter with praise and thanksgiving. This is entirely problematic in Christian theology because it asks us to be indifferent to the suffering of half a million people. I say this is problematic because Jesus Christ lived in solidarity with those who suffered. Jesus talked about salvation in the last parable of Matthew chapter 25. He offered a story that revealed that salvation was not found in religious buildings or by listening to ordained clergy or even in the pages of Scripture. Instead, in this parable, Jesus demonstrates that salvation is found in feeding those who are hungry, clothing those who are naked, visiting those who are in prison, and caring for those who are sick. That's where salvation lies, according to Jesus. So the idea that God killed 500,000 Israelite soldiers to teach Christians a lesson is invalid because this lesson requires me to go against the very teachings and incarnation of Jesus Christ. That brings us back to our question. Why did God kill 500,000 Israelite soldiers? Whenever we try to rationalize God killing 500,000 people, The answers always come up short, don't they? The reason for this is because there is no good reason for God to kill 500,000 people. Think about this for a moment. Try to imagine a scenario where God murders half a million people right in front of you. And you respond by saying, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. I recently saw the film Just Mercy. And in that movie, there is a scene where a man who murdered another human being is put in an electric chair and killed. As I watched it, I could barely keep my eyes on the screen because of the barbarity of the situation. The scene left me repulsed by the entire idea of the death penalty. This was just one death. Not only that, but it was only a dramatic recreation of an actual execution that occurred. And from just the recreation, I was convinced that the justice system was corrupt and in need of radical reform. Now imagine seeing God flip the death switch 499,999 more times and responding with praise for God. I can't do it. I don't think you can do it. And when you consider what our society does, the only way that we can tolerate the horrors of the death penalty is when we hide it from our eyes and pretend that the death penalty doesn't exist. There is no good reason for God to kill 500,000 people. Why would we try to justify this action? Now, the only reason that Christians try to defend this action is because it's in the Bible. And Christians are trained from a very young age to always believe and then defend what the Bible says as truth. But what if this story isn't true? At least not true in the reported size and scope that the author of Chronicles would have us believe. Sure, a leader named Abijah may have met a man named Jeroboam and clashed with him in battle in the hill country of Ephraim. Maybe Abijah had only 4,000, not 400,000, soldiers, and Jeroboam had a mere 8,000. Because the idea that 1.2 million people could fight a battle, with 500,000 falling in an instant, without leaving any archaeological evidence whatsoever is, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Are you disturbed by the proposition that a story in the Bible may not be all that accurate? Or are you relieved that you no longer have to defend God, killing 500,000 Israelite soldiers? There is a third option that people might present to me, that perhaps the size and scope of the battle wasn't as grand as Chronicles tells us, but that God did historically intervene, and God actually killed some Israelites at the battle, but not 500,000. Now, if someone told me that this is what they believed happened, I would respect it. I would disagree with it, but I would respect it because I am convinced that if God actually intervened in the battle of Mount Zemarim, then God would be against Judah, against David's great-grandson Abijah, and instead God would be for Israel and for Jeroboam. I believe this because of a question that we all need to ask. Why is the Battle of Mount Zemaraim being fought? Imagine that we could go back in time and interview both sides of this conflict and ask them why they are fighting that day. I believe that Judah would say something like The nation of Israel refuses to recognize that David's grandson and great grandson are anointed by God to be king. We fight for authority. Israel, however, would say something quite different. I believe they would say something along the lines of, we asked Abijah's father to stop enslaving us. He refused. So today, we fight for our own freedom. Wait a second. Who are the bad guys in this story? Israel is? The people who don't want to be enslaved? Isn't that a bit concerning to you? When you read that Israel is the villain? When Judah was enslaving people? The good guys should be the ones who are rebellion against the whole institution of slavery, right? The only way that one can be convinced that Israel is the bad guy in the battle of Mount Zemaraim is if you are telling this story from the perspective of the people of Judah, which is exactly what happened. The author of Chronicles is a descendant of the nation of Judah, and he's writing this story 600 years after it allegedly occurred. This author has his own agenda, his own motives, and his own patriotism, and all of it colors the way he sees and records history. In his mind, Israel is the villain, and God is on the side of Judah. Judah. In the Bible, the history of the kings is told entirely from Judah's perspective. How different would the story of the battle of Mount Zemarim be if Israel told the story? I can tell you it would be quite different. What if you had the opportunity to tell the story of Mount Zemarim? Would you tell this story in a different way than the author of Chronicles? I want to close this podcast by inviting you to participate in a thought experiment. For this experiment, I want to invite you to rewrite the story of the Battle of Mount Zemaraim. But don't rewrite it as a history. Instead, rewrite this story as a parable or as a fable. There are only two ground rules. One, you need to start with 1.2 million troops ready to do battle at the Battle of Mount Zemaraim. And number two, God must intervene in this story and change the trajectory of the humans involved. That's it. I believe the way that you rewrite this story tells a lot about what you actually believe about God. In your revision of this story, what does God do? How are God's actions different in your story than the actions of God in Chronicles? And what do these actions in your parable tell you that you believe about God? How would you tell the story of the battle of Mount Zemaraim? If I had the opportunity to rewrite the battle of Mount Zemaraim as a parable, then it would go something like this. One day, in the shadow of Mount Zemaraim, 1.2 million people gathered for war. 400,000 of these people were ready to die for who they believed to be God's chosen king, while 800,000 others were ready to give their lives to live as free humans. The air felt heavy with the anticipation of war. Soldiers shouted and chanted in solidarity with their nation, but inside they nervously wondered if today... Would be their last day on earth. Into all of that heaviness, chaos, and confusion, King Abijah of Judah rode on the back of a horse to the center of no man's land between the two armies. But rather than addressing his own troops, he turned to his opponents from Israel and spoke directly to them. People of Israel, Abijah shouted. Last night, God visited me in the dead of night. Now the opposing Israelite soldiers rolled their eyes. Of course, the king of Judah thought that God visited him last night. Every king believes that God visits them the night before a battle. But King Abijah continued. In a vision, God showed me how my grandfather Solomon enslaved your ancestors. God placed me in your chains and forced me to walk a mile in your shoes. I felt the weights that my grandfather placed upon your ancestors' backs in order to boost the economy, expand the military, and to build an opulent temple. That weight that I felt from God was crushing. It broke me. To you in Israel today, to the descendants of those slaves— I am sorry for the sins of my grandfather. Stunned silence fell over the 800,000 Israelite soldiers. They did not anticipate those words. A handful of the troops gasped in disbelief. Abijah kept speaking, but this time his voice quivered as he spoke. God also revealed to me that my father Rehoboam Turned his back on your nation when you pled for mercy. You implored my father to be kinder. You begged him to recognize your humanity. You approached him in vulnerability, and my father responded with an attack. He threatened to be even more of a tyrant than my grandfather. He said that while Solomon used whips, he would replace those whips with scorpions. Abijah paused. He gathered himself. After a minute, he went on. God showed me all of this last night from your perspective. God miraculously revealed the villainy of my father. God showed me that I have a wasteland of hatred inside of me. And then God filled that wasteland with an ocean of empathy. I do not blame you for revolting against my father. I would have revolted too. For the cruelty and threats of my father, I am sorry. We are all descendants of Israel. We are all children of God. And my family, my father and my grandfather, consistently failed to recognize that. Last night, God revealed to me in a vision that the eternal cycle of wars, bloodshed, and violence will continue if I choose to meet you in battle today. I cannot bear the heaviness of that destruction. Tears streamed down Abijah's face as his voice trailed off. After a moment, he realized he could say no more. He took off his crown and placed it on the ground. After a moment, one by one, 1.2 million soldiers dropped their weapons, and no blood was shed that day at Mount Zemurim. To me, this is a miracle that I can believe in. This is a miracle of love, empathy, and hope. And this parable illustrates the God that I know. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, allow me to tell you what I know to be true. True devotion to God always leads to deeper self-reflection. When I hear powerful people humbly admit how they contributed to a problem and then commit to change, I admire their faith. When I see someone seek out another that they wronged and sincerely apologize, I want to know that God that inspired them to do that. When I see someone genuinely forgive their enemy, I take off my shoes because what I have seen is holy. In this lifetime, I have found that true devotion to God does not lead to greater political power, stronger military, or even untold riches. Instead, God beckons us to an interior journey of transformation. She invites us to see how we can change in order to bring about greater love, peace, and reconciliation. May we remember that true devotion to God always leads to deeper self-reflection. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all as we lay down our crowns.